This is 20 Pages a Week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I'm here to help. I'll supply you with one story that grabbed my attention, one verse that I found particularly interesting, and one word that I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest's up to you. This is Quarter One, Lesson Three. The reading is the book of Exodus. We'll start with my first impressions. It always gets worse before it gets better. We expect God to come to our rescue, as He does. We expect things to get better, as they do. But it doesn't happen the way that we expect, or certainly the way that we would prefer. That's the way it works in the Moses story. God has decided to deliver His people, but first, all the children have to die. Moses is born as the Savior, but first, he has to go live with Pharaoh. Moses himself commits himself to delivering the people, but first he has to embarrass himself in front of Pharaoh, kill the Egyptian, and live 40 years in exile in Midian. He comes back to deliver the people, but first they have to be convinced. And the early plagues, remember, affected Israel as much as they affected Egypt. They're taken all the way to Mount Sinai, but first they have to struggle in the wilderness. And of course they have to spend 40 years in the wilderness before they get to the land of Canaan. It has nothing to do with God's long-term plan and whether he is or is not going to follow through with his commitment. It's oftentimes about us making things more difficult than they have to be. The quicker we surrender to God's will, the quicker we commit ourselves to his path and enduring whatever kind of hardships may come along the way, the quicker we're going to be about realizing the greatness that God has in mind for us. With all the great stories in the book of Exodus, I have trouble believing that I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to talk about a story that's not really even a story. It's not something that happened. It's something that might have happened. If it did, the Bible doesn't describe it. I'm referring to the first few verses of Exodus chapter 21. And the placement of this is interesting, especially. This is as God is beginning to explain himself to his people. Chapter 20, of course, is where the Ten Commandments are given. And there's a few words about how... Worship before Yahweh is going to be different than any kind of worship they've ever known before. And in chapter 21, he starts giving some relatively specific guidelines for how Israelite society is going to work. And the very first thing he writes is this, starting in verse 1. Now, these are the ordinances which you are set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he will serve for six years. But on the seventh, he will go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he will go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife will go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and he bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master will bring him to God, then he will bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. I find it interesting that This is in the text in the first place. And secondly, that it would show up in context that would appear to give it some prominence. And again, there's no indication that this ever happened, although I suspect after a thousand years or so of life in the land of Canaan, it would have happened at some point. But the idea of a slave becoming a permanent slave really strikes me, especially as an American, of course. We hate the idea of slavery. We hate the idea of surrendering to someone else, certainly voluntarily giving ourselves over permanently to someone else. That's an unthinkable scenario. But apparently it wasn't going to be unthinkable for some. 
And as with many, many passages that we could talk about in Exodus and other parts of the Old Testament, I'm convinced that this is given to us for a much greater reason than simply creating order and rules in Israelite society. Because the parallels between this and our experience in Jesus are so striking and so remarkable, I can't help thinking this is no coincidence. We as Christians are enslaved to Jesus, and our enslavement is exactly that, and it's voluntary. That's the thing. We choose to become slaves. We choose to stay slaves, as is the case with these servants in the Old Testament. You have a chance to leave if you want. You don't have to stay here. Hebrew slaves were required to be released, the text says, in the seventh year. You have a chance to go, but if the master is good, then that slave is going to experience something in his master's service that he could not have experienced anywhere else. And he's going to grow to love that experience. He doesn't want to be anywhere else. And so he chooses to remain there. And then when he does that, his master will mark him, in this particular case by boring a hole through his ear. And from that point on, that servant will serve his master forever. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus presents himself as our master. He wants us to serve him. He wants us to stay with him forever. We don't have to do that. You can, if you want, go serve other masters. Many people do. In fact, it would be fair to say that most do. Jesus dies on the cross for your sins, and you can decide what you're going to do with that. If you truly love the Lord, if you truly appreciate what it means to be in his service, then you want this to never, ever end. And so therefore, you commit yourself to him, and he will mark you. The book of Revelation is especially noteworthy with regard to these things. God places his mark on you, not a literal mark, like the mark of Cain, but rather the spiritual mark, an anointing, John calls it in 1 John chapter 2. He shows the world, and he certainly shows the people of God. We are different from anybody else. And when you submit to that mark, you are his forever. You can run away if you want to, but we don't have to, and we don't want to, because in Jesus, we have everything we could possibly want. We aspire for nothing more than simply being a slave in our master's house forever. That's what we want, and Jesus promises us that's exactly what we're going to get. Lots of verses would do, but I'm going to refer to chapter 33 and verse 13 in the broader context here of Moses coming into the presence of God. Moses says here, Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. The idea of coming to know God and being granted the privilege of knowing him and knowing his ways, that's what being a child of God is all about. And of course, the people on the outside have no interest in this kind of thing. But when we are close enough to see God, when we appreciate who he is, when we appreciate what is available in fellowship with him, then we don't want anything else. Knowing his ways can include knowing his nature, knowing his character, knowing his expectations, knowing his future plans for us. And those things become our things as we 
conform ourselves to the plan of God, we become more like him in our nature, in our character, in our expectations. Our future plans become wholly centered around him. This only comes when we are in his presence. God says in verse number 14, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, that is Moses, said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? This is what sets us apart. This is what makes us special, the peculiar people that Peter writes about in 1 Peter chapter 2. We have been granted entrance into the presence of God. And when we properly appreciate that, when we come to know his ways or begin to know his ways, we realize we cannot afford to go any place when God is not there with us. We want to be consumed with his things. The more we read the Bible, the more we read about these connections between great men and women of faith and their creator, the more we appreciate this craving for fellowship, for closeness, for proximity, knowing the ways of God. This is how you can approach God. This is how you can draw near to God and find comfort in God in our difficult times, in our joyful times, in our doubtful times, in our times of decision. The more we know the things of God, the more we know the ways of God, the more we can become like God and be ushered closer and closer into the presence of God. The word I found myself focusing on is the word holy. Among other places, in chapter 28, verse 36, it's described as being inscribed on the plate that Aaron wore in his priestly garments, holy to the Lord, meaning not just, of course, that Aaron in his high priestly role was holy, although that's certainly implied, but in a broader sense, the nation is holy, or is supposed to be holy at least. The task that he calls them to is holy. The priest doing the work that he was going to do was in pursuit of holiness, The word holy refers to being set apart, sanctified. I think the reason that a fair amount of Exodus is devoted to pursuit of holiness is because the people have no concept of holiness, at least not in the context of Yahweh. God tells them from the very beginning, you shall have no other gods before me. The relationship that God has with his people is unique. It is solitary. It will not tolerate any kind of defilement. That's why so oftentimes, and in so many different contexts, idolatry is condemned in the text. God is not satisfied with being the first among many. God wants to be the only one that his people serve. And certainly that has not changed in the era of Jesus Christ. You shall be holy for I am holy. Peter refers to that in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16. This is his requirement for a holy people, that we set ourselves apart, that we do not touch the unclean thing, that we come into his presence forgiven of our sins, made right through the blood of his Son. Only in this way can the people of God truly find fellowship with a holy God. We have to pursue a holiness ourselves. That is an eminently practical consideration. If you can put away your defilements of the flesh, if you can put away your sinful lifestyle, then you can find yourself in the presence of God with all the blessings that attach to that. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip through the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. We'll be reading Leviticus. God bless and keep reading.